Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. On today's show, we'll be talking about the Super Prestigio event in Barcelona, as well as discussing some of the latest news from the MotoGP class. I'm Neil Morrison. You can find me on Twitter at neilmorrison87. And with me today are... Uh, David Emmett. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Moto Matters. And... Stephen English. And you can find me on Twitter at SteveEnglishGP. Before we get started, we hope you're following the show on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash paddockpasspodcast. And Twitter at Paddock Pass Pod. And if you happen to listen to us on iTunes, please be sure to leave a review and a rating because it greatly helps other MotoGP fans find the show. Okay, so we just saw the third running of uh, the Super Prestigio event in the Montjuic Hills above Barcelona. Uh, David, you've been to all three uh, of the Super Prestigio events since they started in January 2014. Yeah, January 2014. Yeah. Um, how was how was this event for you and how did it compare to the, the previous run-ins? This one was, uh, I think, by far the most professional. Uh, they've really got the whole organisation uh, down. Um, uh, the, the first one was, uh, well, done almost quite hurriedly because uh, the idea came up, I think, in um, after... Mark Marquez visited the offices of Solomoto, who uh, the the boss of the old boss of Solomoto had actually had loads of old pictures of the of the original Supermoto, which was run in the late uh, uh, late seventies, early eighties, I think, and then they tried again in the nineteen nineties um, uh, of this dirt track event, sort of in, in the middle of Barcelona. It used to be run, I think, at an old dog dog track in um, a greyhound track in, in in Barcelona. That was the the, the first place they went. Um, he saw that, thought it was awesome, said, oh, I want to do that because he'd been riding a dirt track, I think, for maybe a year or so by then. And um, so they put it together. Um, nobody had any real experience of what to do. I mean, they had um, Dennis Noyes and his son Kenny, who did a, a really an awful lot of work to actually assemble the whole event. Um, uh, Kenny runs a dirt, a dirt track school out by um, the... Uh, called Noise Camp out by the Aragon Circuit. Um, Canudas. And also, yeah, also at Canudas, which I think is a sec- that, that, that's a second one that they uh, that they put up somewhere. But um, uh, yeah, so they had some experience, but it was actually getting uh, getting all of the things together, getting the, uh, uh, the they had trouble getting the right dirt together, and uh, I think the biggest problem they had the first year was persuading the. Uh, persuading the people who were preparing the track to put enough water on the track because they were saying, no, no, it's soaking, it's soaking, you can't put any more on, but they really needed the first track. And so the first, uh, I think at the first session of practice, the entire stadium was just clouds of dust. You couldn't see anything. We were completely coated in this orange, uh, in orange clay dust, which was um, uh, quite good fun. Second year, it was better. It was much more um, more slickly organised. Um, I think they had to move dates around a bit because there was a, um, a Barcelona versus Real Madrid, if I remember correctly on the original date um, and this one th- they put it all together again the only real disadvantage is that Barcelona were playing um, in Barcelona uh, on a Saturday afternoon and so I think uh, we probably lost a few attendees then but the whole thing it's just a fancy it's just a fantastic show it's like a supercross it's just there are, you, there's barely time to you know go up and uh, empty a bladder in between uh, in between the action. It's ridiculous. Yeah, and this was your this was your first time over for the event, Steve. You've been to many Grand Prix races um, in the last couple of years. How did it compare? I thought it was a really interesting event, and you know the setting is terrific. The crowd was, you know, really pumped up for it. Yeah, as David said, like it's like a Supercross round, similar enough to what you get at BSB as well, where it's just action the whole way, and it's the kind of thing that. If you're not a bike fan, you can go and just enjoy the atmosphere. You can follow everything relatively easy. It's you know short races. It's it's just a, a good fan friendly event to be able to come and introduce something like flat track to here, and as well as that, like whenever you get Brad Baker, Jared Mees, you've got two of the best flat trackers in the world coming. So you know the level of competition's high, and then this year as well, like Marquez brought his A game. But as well as that, the rest of the Grand Prix riders also really improved their performances. But it was interesting, like what David was saying about the track conditions, because I was talking to Chris Carr for about five minutes about the track, and it was like watching Gardner's World or something. <laughs> you know, at a Grand Prix, we'll talk about the track conditions and we'll talk about it rubbering in, and it's, it starts off quite green. But what Chris was talking about in terms of you know this red clay is just so different to 
some other dirt that they'll race on in the States. And it was just interesting to see how adaptable the riders have to be because that's something that we can't really understand that as Grand Prix reporters, just how big of a change occurs through the weekend. And like I found myself just asking what must be the stupidest questions that guys like Brad have ever heard, but it's what you need to do. Yeah. Looking at the looking at the, the entry list, I think maybe last year there were a few more eye-catching names on there. There was Troy Bayless, uh, Guy Martin, a few more Grand Prix guys like Scott Redding and Brad Bradley Smith. Uh, those guys weren't here this year, but we still had Baker, Jared Mees, the two the two you know best American dirt track guys, and obviously Marquez and a host of other GP names. Um, I thought the racing in the end this year was was a bit more spectacular. Um, would you guys Would you guys agree? I I think I don't know about spectacular. It was certainly uh, I mean because the one thing that um, everyone said, Mees, Baker, also Chris Carr. Um, you know, Chris Carr is a seven time um, a G- AMA GNC champion, so he knows what he's talking about. He was calling. He was on um, commentating duties. Uh, what they all said was that the level of the racing was much much higher. Just the the standard of preparation was much higher. Um, all of the people were, uh, all of the riders had spent much more time on their bikes, uh, on their preparation. Um, the first year, I think, uh, uh, I can't remember if it was Brad Baker or Jared Mee said, but basically the first couple of years they were, uh, they came. You could, they could uh, be a little bit more patient and just wait for someone to make a mistake and then get past and, uh, and go on, but, uh, you, you know, move past. This year, they couldn't. You, you literally, the riders were just not making the same mistakes that they, that they had been in the past. Um, and so it actually, made, it actually made the level of the competition much much tougher. And you saw that in one of the open class finals where I think the first one, where Mies and Baker were third and fourth, which, uh, you know, these are the two best people in the world. And it just by virtue of, a, of getting a poor start, uh, you end up going into turn one behind a couple of people, and then it gets really, really tough to get past again. Yeah, and even even in qualifying, there were I think uh, Mies was about fifth, and Baker was sixth, which was quite a show up, about three tenths of a second slower. The Marquez around the twelve second lap or eleven second lamp on on occasion. You know, there was a bit of a show up. But Steve, you were going to say, yeah, you saw the level of competition, how it's changed just in the course of three years. Basically, Mies made a poor start in the Super Prestigio final and he drops to fifth into turn one. And then whereas in the first year, you know, himself and Baker both said it, they could easily just overtake people. People would make mistakes. People would, would run a little bit wide and you'd find a gap and you'd be able to get through within a couple of laps. But Mies, even with a speed advantage, couldn't close down the gap to Baker or Marquez at the front. And that's come basically just from the Europeans getting more and more practice, getting more and more used to it. As David said, the track conditions, it's so much more professional now that we end up with a much smoother, much more predictable track, which suits the Europeans, probably holds back the Americans a bit as well. Yeah, I mean, basically, that's what um, uh, both Mies and Baker were saying. It was much more when the track is like this. It was it was a really good track. It was very uh, very smooth, very predictable. Actually, there were it wasn't technical enough for the Americans to actually be be able to use their advantage. And it's such a short track. I think it's less than two, maybe two hundred meters. I'm not even sure if it's two hundred meters. Maybe two hundred fifty meters, which is you know nothing at all. You barely. Uh, I think you're probably only ever in third gear, and that's about it. And uh, the, the, there's just no time to to actually try anything, to actually try try much at all, to try to make a move. Yeah, it's a, it is a 200 meter track, and you heard the whole weekend the difference experience makes. Yeah. And on a short track like that, it's 11.9 seconds, 12 second lap. You're not going to make up a big amount of time, but if you were going on to a quarter mile, half mile, full mile, that's where you'd see the the difference in class and someone like Marquez no matter how talented he is he's not going to be able to go and do a mile he's not going to be able to go and do a half mile race you put him onto a 750 and as Baker said it would be the same as him jumping onto a MotoGP bike yeah. and expecting to be fast yeah yeah he'd be a long way behind I mean one of the most interesting things that I found this weekend was the fact that the the juniors who were I think on 85cc yeah they're on 85cc two strokes it was lovely to actually hear a two strike engine again at a motorcycle race we should have more of that um uh, the kids that i think there were eight to eleven uh and they were circulating they were doing 12 sevens at one point and uh, uh for a lap uh and at the same time there were uh you know the top guys were doing, doing 12 threes 12 fours which is 
amazing, just a tiny little difference. David, if you want to hear two strokes, the 250 Classic at the TT is coming back next year. <laughs> <laughs> it's now and ever. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. I once owned a, uh, I once owned a, a Yamaha RD 350LC and it's still the great sadness of my life that I actually sold the bloody thing. Yeah, it's missing that smell that, uh, yeah, that keeps exactly. me awake at night, to be honest. Yeah. Well, in terms of the, the Super Final, um, we were kind of robbed of this uh, of this clash last year because Brad Baker, um, who had been kind of tearing the, the timesheets up in practice in the 2014 event, uh, crashed, uh, injured his shoulder, his elbow, had to withdraw from the event, couldn't race. Um, and it was there in a, a straight shootout between Marquez and Mies. Uh, Marquez won that. Uh, but this year in the Super Final, we actually got to see uh, Baker and Marquez, um, the, the kind of the, the battle that lit up the first uh, running of the event um, in, in January 2014. Uh, they, they were really going at it. And um, this time, Baker just prevailed. Yeah, I mean, uh, I found it, it was really interesting when um, uh, Baker was talking to us after the race, uh, saying that he approached it much more calmly. He'd been building up to it much more uh, much more carefully. Um, he One of the things they actually learned from also from last year when he was injured, because he broke, I think, a couple of... Um, uh, he had, he's had, in the last couple of years, he's had... Um, five surgeries. Yeah, five yeah, surgeries. Two years. He, he, yeah, yeah, exactly. He's broken a leg and he's yep. broken a, a whole bunch of stuff. And so uh, he learned that you don't go out and try and win it all in the, you know, in, in, in free practice. We, we, something we say about um, uh, about some of the GP guys as well. There's no point in going to go try and win it on the first lap. The the uh, A race, takes it takes all race. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, he said... He he came into last year's event and he was just trying to, to demoralize everyone basically by the you know the end of the first practice session um and and you know i think he's he suffered quite um i think he broke his arm yes um in last year uh, in april uh, then he injured himself at the super Prestigio, and then he broke his leg in august in a race i think it was in south dakota and that was just from a, a bit of debris flying up from another bike uh he didn't see it and basically it cracked his leg um so yeah he said that that kind of uh that experience that hardship of uh of rehabilitation and, and and kind of uh, you know hospital visits and all that kind of thing has uh, has kind of forced him to to adopt a similar or a different approach um, to to what he was doing in the past. Yeah, it's interesting that he's taken this approach this year, which is the same year that Mark's also taken this approach. Yeah. You know, we were looking at it and they were born 24 hours apart. Yeah. Their careers have followed such a similar yeah. arc, and then this year, you know, Mark instead of being ultra aggressive constantly riding above the limit i think halfway through the year he sort of realized you can do that to a certain point but not consistently anymore and he had to just draw back a little bit just like brad was talking about having to do as well and that's where i think that's where mark made his big improvement this year and that's also what presumably you'll see make a big change for baker in the in the championship as well yeah well obviously they did it for different reasons i mean uh, i think for brad baker it was more of a uh, if you like a mental um uh, change it was a change to his attitude it was something that he realized that you don't have to win uh, you don't there, there there are no points for for winning the heats uh, you only get the they only hand the prizes out at the end of the day. Whereas for Mark, it was more that he was trying to keep up on a bike which really wasn't capable of keeping up, and um, uh, he was he wanted to be on the he wanted to try and win or be on the podium. And um, I think after five, four or five crashes, he realised that. Uh, there wasn't really an awful lot of point to do, to to trying to do that. I think it was quite clear from watching the the early heats that uh, the Baker was going to be the man to beat. I think it was in the uh, maybe the first or the second heat, which was the the qualifier for the the open class final. I remember um, he didn't get the best of starts and he went into the the first corner, the first left hander in about fourth place, and he was on the outside and he just kind of dragged the motorcycle on its side and just kind of slid it right to the center uh, in front of everyone and exited just smoothly out in front, like so from fourth to first. Um, obviously that's a great deal of experience that, that contributed to being able to do something like that but I think it was clear that you know he had his technique right down from the very start yeah. of, of the racing yesterday yeah I think the one thing about it is we were standing for the the first practice out at the first and second corners and from lap one he was just committed you know you saw everyone else even the the ice racers the other guys in the open class all come out and build up gradually to it but Mies and Baker just went straight out looked comfortable setting 12 second lap times right from the outset and from that point like the, you knew that one of them was going to win the race even with Mark with all the talent he has with the extra advantages you'd say nearly just by it being on a short track the Americans haven't come over use the 17 inch wheels 
different things like that. You still knew that it was going to be Baker or Mees and Baker just looked more comfortable all weekend, looked more confident. Yeah, I think it's worth mentioning and talking about the advantages which the Europeans have. I mean, there is the 17-inch wheels. There's also the fact that uh, I don't know how much of... uh, um, Mark's crew were actually with him in the garage, but there was at least two of them. There was Santi Hernandez and, and I think his data, uh, his data guy as well. Um, I think there was another one. Uh, there were rumours, as always, of uh, this being a, a special HRC engine coming straight out of the uh, motocross factory, in, which I think is in in Italy. Whoever prepares their motocross uh, engines, so this was uh, this engine was absolutely spot on. He's got all the buttons on his handlebars. He's got the uh, the, the the traction control or the the electronic settings. Don't know whether it's traction control, but it's probably electronic settings to manage uh, uh, to manage tire wear, which was a factor. I shall we'll talk about that later. But uh, yeah, I mean, obviously he had a big advantage. Yeah, like I think as. Each in each race we saw it, maybe not so much in the super final, but in each other heat final, everything we saw Mark do. As the race went on, he seemed to lose his pace. As the tire heated up, he lost his grip. But in the sixteen lap grand final, maybe being able to change maps, being able to do something with the electronics is what helped <laughs> him to uh to keep close to, to Baker. He never looked like he was gonna overtake him, but he was able to stay right with him. And having Santi and the rest of the crew is like it doesn't matter if it's a flat track bike going out motocross and going out in a MotoGP bike having those guys there with their knowledge is going to make a big difference you could certainly see from uh, the starts of the the super prestigious heats um more times than not marquez was getting the shot right into the first corner usually he was going in first or second it certainly looked like that that bike that he was on had a little bit more punch kind of you know coming off the coming off the line yeah i mean i spoke to chris carl for a, quite a while about tires which was very interesting and what he was saying was that uh, because they were using basically supermoto rain tires um uh, last year and the year before those tires were great because the track was was tearing up and there was sort of some loose dirt um this t- the, this track was absolutely rock solid it was very hard um it was getting very smooth and so the big blocks on these super on these supermoto rain tires um, they were moving around and generating a lot of heat and that meant that it was actually more of a, dis- a disadvantage um, it was actually an advantage to have a uh, to have a used tire. Uh, Chris Carr told me that um, they that Brad Baker had actually gone off and bought a used super mo- a, a used tire off of someone else who'd uh, who'd already been disqualified to because the uh, as the tire wears the blocks get smaller so they don't move around as much as much so they don't overheat as much and uh, and so you actually get more you get more grip. It was actually an advantage to have a used tire rather than the, uh, a new tire here. It, well, it was it was interesting. Uh, the the super final, I think it was sixteen laps um, at the flag. Marquez and Baker were separated by one tenth of a second. Yet watching them on track, especially if you're down by track side, I'm sure when you were down there taking photos, Steve, you saw this a lot. Um, both guys had a pretty radically different style on the bike. Um, you were you were mentioning last night, Steve, when we were speaking to Brad after the press conference that he was much more upright on the bike um, whereas mark although his bike was upright was hanging off it a lot more you know as you would kind of see him on the on the moto gp bike um and and both Mies and baker kind of said how mark's style has kind of been evolving over the last two years um you know how did you see it yeah i think when you looked at mark you saw basically what we see on a moto gp bike he's trying to get his weight off the edge trying to generate edge grip from the tire to drive him forward when you look at the flat trackers they're much more upright. They're just they were basically thought, put your weight on the bike, keep it in a straight line, and then that's how you'll get your drive grip. And when we were talking to Brad about it, he was pretty pretty impressed by Mark and how he's changed his style over the course of the three years, how he's used his left foot, how he's changed his angles on the bike and things like that. But because of how he uses dirt track to train, he needs to make it relevant for what he's going to do in a MotoGP bike. We saw the same thing with Rins, with Alex Marquez. They were all basically hanging off the side, just trying to put the weight where they'd need it on a Grand Prix bike. And that's where the the big change is. Yeah, I think Brad was also saying that Mark was doing a lot more um, kind of breaking with the front wheel, um, which he said is one of the most difficult things to kind of uh, to learn when you're doing this kind of flat track or dirt track racing, you know, to kind of try and get the wheel turned when you're entering the, entering the corner to scrub off speed. And Mark, as he noticed, had kind of was doing that more effectively this year around than the previous years that he had been training with him. 
Yeah, I mean, talking about training on uh, using this to train for a MotoGP bike, uh, that was the reason for having having the 17-inch tires or there's the 17-inch wheels. Well, there was two of them. One was so that you know you don't have to set your bike up completely differently when you stick supermoto tires on and go supermoto riding. Um, uh, but also, it's because the smaller the, the, the smaller diameter tire is, is more a little bit more relevant to road racing. Um, it makes it a little bit more difficult to ride, is what Marquez was saying, um, and so which is exactly what he wants when he's training. He wants it to be hard harder to ride, so he's learning about bur- bur- bike control rather than putting the uh, uh, a nineteen inch wheel will track a little bit uh, a little bit better and make a corner entry a little bit a little bit easier, not as fast, not as uh, a little bit a little bit more stable and. You know, that's not what 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 Mark wants. What Mark wants is, is to figure out uh, how to ride the bike to the maximum without hurting himself too badly. Yeah, Tony Elias was at the Vegas Super Prestige. Was it two weeks ago? I think it's on a two hundred meter track as well. Maybe a two fifty yeah, meter a little, track. A little bit shorter. Was it shorter? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, he said the same thing. Using the the nineteen inch was an awful lot easier. And then Mark joked about, "I don't want something that's easy. I want yeah. something that's gonna." Teach me how to ride a MotoGP bike. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, Marquez actually wanted to go to the uh, uh, to the Las Vegas account, but uh, to the uh, Las Vegas Super Prestige year, but um, uh, Honda prevented him because the uh, rather pressing matter of uh, their 2016. Uh, yeah. Issue. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they, they. They. There was the the Super Prestige or the Las Vegas uh, the Super Prestige of the Americas, as it was called. Um, uh, that took place uh, before the uh, Jerez test, which I think both of you two were at. And um, uh, yeah, they couldn't risk uh, uh, Mark banging his leg, breaking a leg, or whatever, and not being able, uh, able to test that, uh, test the 2016 bike because Honda are, are in a spot of bother with their 2016 bike, uh, as I think we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I'd say that Mark's quite lucky to have the 17-inch tires for uh, when he's training on the dirt track bike because that bike looked pretty, uh, pretty hairy in her wrap as well. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so there were, you know, there were a mix of, of some new names for us, um, guys from different uh, different disciplines, and then there were also some GP races, um, World Superbike races as well uh, thrown in there. Um, I think the the, the super final and, and some of the some of the different classes threw up some surprises. Um, was there anyone uh, out there that, that kind of particularly impressed either of you, Steve? There was uh, there was a few. You know, I think Marcel Schroeder actually really impressed me. He looked yeah. so comfortable on the bike. Yeah, the thing about Schroeder, I spoke to Schroeder uh, brie- uh, briefly and he said, basically, you know, it's a supermotor bike. Yeah, I think he'd done one or two days training before. Um, no idea what to get on, but he, he learned really, really quickly. Yeah, it's like when he first came into Grand Prix and he jumped on, what was it, a Honda 125 at Valencia and he was top 10 and he was instantly quick, you know. Qualified in the front row. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Okay, David. What about yourself? Uh, well, I, I was um, I was really surprised by uh, uh, Xavi Vierge, who's going to who rides for Tech Three. He's going to be. I think he rode for Tech Three in the second half of this year, mm-hmm. and he'll be running for Tech Three again next year. Their Moto Two bike. Uh, interesting also that Schrotter was quick and Vierge was quick. Both of them are on the uh, on the Tech Three Moto Two bike, and the Tech Three Moto Two bike is, um, shall we say, not the most competitive bike on the uh, on the grid. But then, yeah. unsurprising given that it's designed during the uh, during Guy Coulon's lunchtime. Yeah, um, Schrotter's just moved off that, of course. Yes, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. So it's going to be interesting to see what he's uh, what he's capable of next year. Yeah. But um, uh, yeah, Xavi uh, Vieira. I mean, he's not a rider that had really sort of uh, hit my radar uh, in the last uh, in the last season. But really, he was really he was really quick. I think also worth saying that um, uh, I was very impressed during practice with. Um, Ollie Brindley, who's I think 16, 17, 17, 17 yeah. yeah, yeah, young British lad, um, uh, racing in uh, uh, racing in the British Dirt Track Association. Which again, also, I really get the uh, impression that the that the British, British Championship, the level of the British Championship is quite high, as is the as is the the the, the Spanish championship as well so yeah um, he was uh, he was very impressive he was good in um, got in qualifying but couldn't get it together in the once the actual heats or he was good in practice couldn't get it together with the with the heats because it was just difficult to pass yeah you could see that in his uh, i saw like i was watching him particularly in a couple of the a couple of the heats and you know he didn't get the best start he would come out of the uh come out of the first corner you know maybe in sixth or seventh place in the group and then would be kind of riding rather erratically trying to find some way of getting up the inside of someone but wasn't really having much joy with 
then you kind of guy that you could see uh, had the pace, but you know was just getting a bit frustrated uh, when he was sat behind other guys. Yeah, well, that's par for the course, really. At this, well, on a short track like this, you're going to end up. You could have a speed advantage, but just being able to get through is a challenge. But just going back to what David was saying about the British Championship, it's interesting that over the course of this weekend, there's plenty of rumours that Stuart Higgs is looking to organise his own flat track series now for the UK, based around some of the stadiums, just to have something similar to this. And obviously, if Higgs is involved, you're going to imagine that, that uh, a lot of the BSB riders will also end up uh, taking part in that. Yeah, yeah, well, there was... Uh, Christian Iden was um, at the Super Stadium last year. Sorry? Christian Iden was... Yeah. The, yeah, so there's one guy, you know, that would probably be... Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, well, the, 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 this is... It. I mean, it's a shame that there weren't so many uh, uh, non-Spanish riders, if you if you yeah. like. Um, it, it, again, it was interesting seeing the, the, the split between the two because you had a lot of riders like, you know, Ollie Brindley and uh, uh, Alan Birtwistle, who mm-hmm. also did very well. Yeah. Um, they are permanent dirt trackers, so they've got their bike set up. But um, we were talking to some of the GP riders, um, I think maybe at Valencia, um, or I had a couple of chats with GP riders who weren't doing it, and they were saying it cost them a lot. It was going to cost them a lot of money to uh, to actually to actually compete just for that one event to prepare the bike, get the suspension set up, spend the time setting it up, get get someone in to set to uh, to set it up just to be competitive because they didn't want to be circulating around near the back. Yeah, the figures that I heard were twenty thousand euros, and for a one-day event, doesn't matter if you're a Grand Prix rider, you're not paying twenty grand to go out just for one day. Exactly. Well, that would then make sense for there to be a second, if there was a second uh, series, wherever it might be in the UK or where, or, or somewhere else, um, then it suddenly becomes more of an interesting proposition if they're doing it either back to back or within a you know within a couple of weeks it makes sense to actually spend the time to spend the money to uh, to get the bike set up but then you know this is supposed to be a cheap form of racing and spending 20 grand on a race weekend is uh, <laughs> uh, not my idea of cheap racing yeah for an exhibition race yeah essentially yeah yeah yeah, yeah everyone was at pains to say that this was just you know a fun weekend where <laughs> We're here just to meet each other, go out for pints on Saturday night. There was there was no competition in Ireland. No, that was no, that no, was interesting. For no, no, it, it was it was completely the atmosphere was completely friendly and there was no sense of uh, no sense of rivalry or competition whatsoever. Yeah. That's yeah. why there was a lot of HRC shirts around. Yeah. You know, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Just to add what you were saying earlier, Dave, uh, Javi Vierge impressed me a lot as well. I think um, I was looking at um, yeah, some of his internet uh, some of his internet activity in the last couple of days. I think he basically got a bike and had about a week's practice uh, three days because I asked days, yeah, yeah, I, right I spoke to him yeah. as well and he said he basically spent three days on the bike and that yeah. was it so to be that fast that quickly yeah yeah very impressive indeed yeah and the guy that you know kind of lit up the the second half of the Spanish championship in the Moto2 class this year I think he narrowly missed the championship but um, you know there's definitely some potential there also I think it would be kind of uh, rude to, to go uh, to miss the opportunity to, to praise Alex Rins um, who wasn't present even on Friday night um, at the practice I think he was at a, a sponsor's do in uh, in Madrid um, wasn't able to practice on Friday night uh, had to travel back to Barcelona I think I, I maybe read somewhere that he was driving through the night to, to get there uh, showed up on Saturday morning did some practice this was 40th fastest in the in the practice uh, or in the qualifying um, timesheets, and you know I kind of thought I, I was speaking to one or two people in the in the panic, and they were saying that yeah, you know he's not taking it that seriously, and you know he started started up slowly and built his way up, and I think he qualified for the super final courtesy of the the last chance uh, heat. Yeah. He won that quite quite convincingly, and uh, yeah, it was just I know we've uh, we've kind of sung his praises quite a few times in this podcast, but um, another solid. Uh, showing from Rins doing exactly what you know we've kind of uh, come to expect him to do you know kind of uh, take a very measured intelligent um, thoughtful approach to something and just kind of gradually build his way into it yeah it's impossible not to look at look, look at the two Alexes really like the, they came together through Spanish championships both of them made their Grand Prix debuts in 2012 teammates for a couple of years both of them title contenders in Moto3 come up to Moto2 this year together but this was another example where you see just Rince being just a step above Marquez and being able to think about what he's doing, very methodical, and just work through his work through his progressions and even missing out in the first night of practice. Like he was still awesome. Yeah. You know, you look at him on the bike and he looked so comfortable. He was using the same riding style as Mark Marquez, but uh just had so much more drive grip than anyone else, other than the top three. 
and he was just impressive. Yeah, um, the, the contrast with Alex is Alex Marquez is interesting because Alex was uh, much more hurried. You could see he was pushing really, really hard. He was trying. Uh, he had two crashes, I think. Um, uh, uh, he even got a little bit of help from his brother in one of the in one of the. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I think in one of the in one of the qualifying finals um, uh, to, to try and get him through, but uh, the, that didn't do that didn't work. They couldn't get him through. So um, uh, yeah, I mean Alex seem oh, Alex to me always seems sort of nervous and rushed, whereas uh, um, Alex Rince always seems sphinx like. You never know what's going on. But there's obviously a, a big brain. Uh, I spoke to his data engineer who was uh, who was here as well, and he was very very impressed with uh, you know after spending a year work with him. Yeah, there's far more in Rince's head than a comb would take out. But yeah. uh, I, I just I've always been a big fan of him. I think he's I think he does exactly what he has to do at all times, and then he handles himself very well too. Like when he lost the championship to Vinales, there was no tantrum. There was just you know he just said the better guy won, and he went on, moved on. The next year was a bit of a struggle, but this year in Moto Two, he's just been—he's been superb, and he'll start next year as a deserved championship favorite. But I just think the way he approaches racing—you know—it shines through in occasions like this where you're taking outside your element, and then it's basically just how quickly you can adapt and things like that. And he shows his talent level this weekend again. To me, the most interesting question about Alex Rince is how he will handle the pressure of silly season next year because the two names that are going to be at the top of everyone's list are going to be Vinales and Rince. Uh, for, uh, and there are already big, big factories um, who are really interested in trying in trying to sign Rince, which could also upset Mark Marquez because if I, uh, Alex Rince and Mark Marquez in the same team... I'd pay money for that. I'd pay money to say that. would be great. But Yeah. Riders always say that, you know, the speculation about the future never has any bearing on the on the results on the racetrack. But uh, you only have to look at, it, at several names this year that were yeah. kind of um, their, their, their immediate future was kind of shrouded in mystery for, you know, one or two races. And there was quite an obvious downturn in results. Um, looking at potentially the Moto3 class uh, when I say that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So um, so that's really it for, for the Super Prestigio uh, for the event in Barcelona. Um, moving on to to some GP news, um, we'll just do a few uh, a little roundup of uh, of one or two things that have that have kind of occurred in the last week or two. Um, Mr. Rossi, he's uh, he's been busy. Well, he hasn't been busy. He's been uh, <laughs> he's been not busy at all. Um, uh, obviously, he's withdrawn his uh, appeal to the cat against the penalty imposed on him uh, at Sepang. It makes a lot of sense. There was no point. The, the, what, the reason for appealing against that penalty was so that he could start. He wouldn't have to start on the back of the grid at uh, Valencia. Um, now next year, it, it, it's not going to make a. It, it, it's not going to make a, a huge amount of difference. The other reason, as well, is he needed a scapegoat, David. But uh, <laughs> I think it's not going to make it's not going to make any difference for next year and things like that. But it's just interesting that he's he's decided to. Leave the legal teams outside of the proceedings. Yeah, but just yeah, move on. you have to because otherwise it, it it remains a distraction. It would be asked questions about it all the way through uh, through 2016. And if he has any title ambitions, and it's Valentino Rossi, of course he has ambitions for the for the, the title. That's why he races. Uh, he doesn't need that kind of uh, distraction. One thing that I'd like to point out about the points he will have. Uh, four points. Uh, the points which he got at Misano will drop off uh, early September, um, leaving him still three more points. If in that short period, I think there's maybe only one or two races, if he got one more point during that period, he wouldn't have to start from the back of the grid again. Um, the, the, as the rules stand now, he would, but uh, I spoke to Mike Webb, I think, at Valencia about this, and he said, yeah, well, it's something we need to look at because... <laughs> You can't have people serving. Uh, you can't have basically it's the double jeopardy situation. You can't have people serving the same penalty for picking up just a single point in, in situations in situations like that when he's already ser uh, served the penalty. So the next time, he, basically, the next time Rossi will be penalised is if he collects, uh, you know, four more points or enough for, for seven points where he has to start from the uh, from pit lane. Yeah. Okay. It's, it seems yeah. to make sense. Uh, you know, from uh, from all angles. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, obviously, Mark Marquez was asked about this uh, about six five times. times. Yeah. yeah, five times, something, yeah. something like that. And uh, every time he just said, it's good for motorcycling. And to be perfectly frank, it is good for motorcycling because it means we can move on. 
yeah, I think this was another weekend where Mark's able just to take the high ground and show that he can move past things, at least in public, and say the right things just to try and rebuild somewhat of a relationship with Rossi. But I think that as far as Rossi's concerned, you know, the, there's been an awful lot of talk about the, the court of arbitration for sport. You get an awful lot of fans that have questioned their neutrality, questioned things about them. But this was another example where they showed they just take facts into, the, into account for the case and move to, to make a speedy resolution where possible. Yeah, yes, yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it, we need to move on from uh, from this. Rossi needs to move on from this, but we won't really know what their relationship is going to be like until they line up next to each other on the grid and uh, and they come together at some point in a corner. Yeah, sitting there together, side by side at the Qatar photo shoot. That's going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm actually looking forward to the Qatar race because I seem to remember the last uh, three editions where they've uh, uh, basically spent all race tangling with each other. So they might be tangling just that little bit more roughly than they than they might normally. So yeah, 2013 de- and 14 for sure. Yeah, yeah, they were yeah. pretty much locked together. Yeah, exactly, yeah. D- exactly. And they were, you know, they were battling each other. For, oh no, 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 no. That's right. 2015. Fifteen. Um, um, Mark basically lost it in the first corner, so uh, yeah, we shall have to wait and see how that uh, how that turns out. You know, they they have history, and we've got we you never really see what the relationship between two riders is until they actually come across each other on the track. Yeah. Well, looking ahead uh, to next year's Moto Two Championship, um, I think it was in Brno this year that um, Eskil Suter was in the paddock. Um, he was speaking off the new chassis that. Um, Suter had designed um, how they were planning on making a, a full factory comeback into the Moto2 class for 2016. I think then he said that they, at the minimum, they wanted to give factory support to four riders, um, but they could stretch that to eight if um, if pushed. Um, they were in discussions with several teams, uh, with several riders, um, but it was announced last week that they are not going to be there um, as a as a kind of factory in the 2016 season. Um, Steve, is this is this a good thing? No, it's not a good thing. Like we we want to see Morawaki back. We want to see six seven manufacturers in a grand prix class whenever you go to have i don't know three speed ups and then a horde of calyxes two, two tech, tech was like it's just not it's not good for grand prix racing but it also shows just the short-sightedness of teams and riders you look at what sam lowes did this year on the speed up the only reason that he got well not the only reason but the primary reason he got an aprilia grand prix contract is because he did things on what is perceived as a lesser bike and sam would said the whole way through the year that the speed up was a good enough bike to win races on, challenge for podiums, but just whenever it was at ninety percent, it was hard to get it back up to that uh, to that maximum. Whereas with the Calyxes, with their data, they were able to do that, and that's that's the main advantage that the Calyx has, as opposed to just like an actual chassis advantage. It's just the fact that you've got so much data there from yeah, yeah. this year. You know, Zarco won on the twenty fourteen frame, just because you've got. 15 other guys using it or whatever exactly Rabat on the 2015 struggled but just by having you know eight ten riders with that frame he was able to to get it together then yeah i think Suter had three entries planned um whenever the entry list came out in valencia um three riders with, with uh, it was uh, three rookies I think. yeah three rookies remy gardner was one of them i think there was another italian uh lad yeah uh, whose name escapes me right at this moment um but you got the impression that there wasn't going to be a great deal of experienced input going into that uh, that chassis which i'm imagining was one of the factors in in their, their reason to pull out yeah well i mean when we started motor to the, uh, the, the, two, the first year of Moto2 2010, I think there were 10 different chassis makers. Um, I spoke to Mark Taylor of FTR um, several times uh, over that period. And the one thing that he consistently identified was you've got to have a good rider. Um, you've got to have a good rider because you need good feedback, but you also have to have a good rider because it's the good rider which makes the... the it, a good rider will get you good results. The good results will mean that the other teams, exactly what you were saying, Steve, the conservatism of the teams, the short-sightedness of the teams, they're only looking at, they're only looking at the results. Um, uh, they see someone going fast on the bike and think, well, you know, all right, the bike is competitive. Um, and so everyone is going yeah everyone ends up on the same sort of uh, uh, on the same package because they think it's the package again it's the it's the arrogance of a uh, uh, an arrogance of, of all elite athletes they think it's never them it's always some external factor 
so it must be the bike, whether it is the bike or not. But uh, again, confidence. Look at uh, uh, look at Scott Redding on the on the Ducati at the uh, at the Jerez test. He gets off the Honda where he's got absolutely he, he just. He'd had in his idea, in his in his mind, the idea that he couldn't ride the uh, the Honda. He hated the Honda. Got off it. Gets uh, gets on it and uh, um, on the uh, on the Ducati at Jerez. He was fast at uh, Valencia. He was incredibly fast at uh, at Jerez. Is that down to the bike? Uh, yes, but I would put at least three tenths of uh, of his time down to the the nut between the handlebars. You know, the the, the between his ears. Yeah, I was talking to a few of Scott's. The people that he would have worked with when he was a kid, just coming up through British Championships, and they always said that if he came back into the pits and they said you need to find half a second, he could just go out and find half a second. So from whenever he was a kid, he was one of those riders that if he got something in his head, he was able to go out and do it then. And I think with the Honda by second half of the year, final third of the year, it was a real struggle for him. He had some good results. Misano obviously with the podium, that's a bit of a freak result with the conditions, but Silverstone he was strong as well but by the end of the year you could see how much of a grind that was on him just knowing that he'd get onto the Honda and it was going to be tough I think once he jumped onto the Ducati maybe the change of team as well just a new environment he's able to see that uh, you know he's still quick like and no one's going to doubt Scott's talent he's shown the whole way through his career that he's a very talented rider but as you say Dave there's so much more to Grand Prix racing than just sheer talent yeah i mean i spoke to danny kent's crew chief a lot this year and um uh spoke to him privately recently and you know he was saying basically the same thing danny never thrived because he was never in the uh, never in the right environment you put him in the right environment i mean the honda was a great bike uh but by the end of the year the kgm was a was a great bike too but uh it was the environment it was the confidence it was just uh it was the the self-belief which um uh which makes the difference and gives them it gives them the speed and when you see to get back to motor two uh when you see other riders winning on a particular chassis it, it doesn't matter what it is, I think I interviewed Guy Coulon about this uh, a long while ago, and he uh, and he said basically the same thing. He said um, um, if the everyone wants to be on the same thing because if 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 another rider is on it, the, the, just the fact that they're even if it's worse, if they're on the same thing as them for a start, it's one variable less that you can exclude from the equation. And the other one is right. Well, they're on that. That's one question mark from a rider's mind, and that's worth a tenth a tenth of a second, uh, two tenths of a second. It's it it it's all about. Um, the mental game and in terms of the spectacle I mean now from a technical point of view if most of the, the, the competitive men pretty much all the competitive men are on uh, are on Calyx's next year really the only differences we, we can discuss and, and debate are, are the suspension uh, why power came in this year and did quite a good job well did a fantastic job actually um, Olin's maybe not so much this year um, but that's really one of the only kind of variables now that we're left to, to kind of ponder and discuss yeah which is really interesting because in Moto2 um, uh, everyone is switching to WP and they're yeah. all leaving Olin's but there's absolutely no one in because I know that uh, the WP are trying to get into um, uh, they want to get into MotoGP they will eventually get through the uh, through the KTM what's the KTM uh, uh, project actually arrives in MotoGP but yeah WP really want to get into MotoGP but they can't get in because all of the teams think they need to be on uh, think they need to be on Olin's yeah I think Grassini and VDS are both staying with Olin's next year yeah and that's about it yeah. So yeah, you'll have what so twenty something, twenty eight uh, bikes on WP and uh, and three four on uh, on Olins and 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 that's your lot. Absolutely. So going on to I guess our final piece of news. Um, Mika Kalia was supposed to be taking part in the Super Prestige race on Saturday evening, but he had a spill while he was practicing on Friday morning. I think he broke a bone in his leg. Yeah, he broke a bone in his leg. He had uh, an operation on uh, Friday morning to fix it. Um, look into the light. Sorry. That's all right. Um, um, <coughs> yeah. Kalia had a um, uh, had an operation on Friday morning to, uh, to, to fix it. He's scheduled to have another... Um, uh, uh, another one on Monday uh, to completely fix it. He expects to be fit for uh, when testing resumes. Uh, I spoke to him uh, for about five minutes um, at the Super Prestige. He, he was, I was, while people were wheeling around, you always feel sort of. Uh, uh, um, 
You have to be a little bit careful because you're sitting there talking to him and it's really busy. Everyone's sort of wheeling bikes around and you're sort of thinking, oh, for God's sake, don't run over his bloody foot again. He's just broken it. Um, but uh, Callio was saying that the um, uh, he expects to be fit for testing, which will be in the new year. They won't be at any of the official tests uh, because the bike's just not ready. That There's, there's still so much work to do uh, on it. He was very impressed with it, said the bike is it's much more ready than he expected it to be. Um, the, the it, it still has a few issues. The front end is a bit. He's not getting enough feeling from the front end that he that he would like. But you know, if this thing is brand new. It's designed from the from from the ground up, so it, it's really it's not really surprising. But you know, it looks like it might actually be quite a, quite a good bike. Yeah, and if there's anything we sort of learned when KTM made a Premier Class bike last time, I know they didn't really run it but you had the year with the proton ktms and uh, the engine was probably the most powerful on the grid at that stage so they should be able to make a good power plant and they've shown a model three that their chassis is yeah i mean the one thing that cali did say which was very interesting he said uh, about the power he didn't they said we didn't have a benchmark so you don't really have any idea of, of how you are against other people they said the, the engine was powerful but also the power delivery was good uh, there was a good connection between throttle and um, uh, between the, the, the throttle and the, and the back wheel but uh, it was difficult because again they're working with the spec electronics everyone uh, the, the, they face the same problem as everyone else which is trying to get the uh, get the electronics calibrated trying to get it sorted and, and, and get it working properly but that KTM is having the same problem that Honda are having and, uh, and probably even worse. Yeah, the biggest advantage for KTM though is that they don't go in with any preconceived knowledge whereas Honda, they're really struggling to, to figure out those electronics. Yeah, exactly, because they're looking back and thinking, yeah, well, the old ones were themselves. much better, but yeah, they, yeah, yeah, they, yeah. They, they, it's not going to do you any good because you're not going to get to ride them. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Okay. Speaking of testing, there yes. was, of course, one more little bit of testing news. Uh, Casey Stoner, obviously we know that Casey Stoner um, uh, has been signed. Uh, it's been officially announced. Uh, but we also know when or roughly when he's going to be testing. Yeah, I was talking to Paolo Chiabati at the Harath test and he said that it'll be they'll be testing probably before Sepang and then as well after Qatar. Right. But what I'm surprised is that he's not testing at Phillip Island because you would have thought it would have been sort of just down the road from him. I can imagine why that Casey doesn't really want to be uh, sort of stuck in the middle of, uh, of of the regular GP paddock because also because there'd be comparisons and it's not his job to actually go out and try and go fast. It's his job to try and figure out uh, how, how good the bike is. Yeah, well, you could also have issues with availability of the track given that you've got the MotoGP test, and then the next week you've got two days of superbike testing, then you've got the Phillip Island superbike race. And as well as that, if you were to pick where you were going to have a low-key test to get back onto a Grand Prix grid, <laughs> or get back onto a Grand Prix bike, you'd probably pick somewhere where it's going to be 40 degrees, 90% humidity, and then Qatar, where there's just no one going to the racetrack. If he does if he does choose to test at Phillip Island, the place would be packed. Yeah, exactly. There'd probably be sort of there'd probably be more people there for uh, Casey Stoner's private Ducati test than there would have been for the Phillip Island GP. Um, uh, obviously, I, I, I'm fairly sure that the Phillip Island GP organisers are uh, desperately begging uh, Ducati to uh, bring him in as a as a wild card because it would uh, it would add probably ten thousand um, uh, ten thousand tickets uh, uh, ticket sales. Yeah, I think if I was Carmelo Espelada, I would have been straight down to Casey saying. There's two million euros. <laughs> do Phillip Island, do Qatar, <laughs> turn up for a couple of rounds down in Italy and see what happens with Rossi. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We haven't always got on, but you know, we can there's still a future for us both. Yeah. Yeah. It was also interesting that uh, David Tordazzi in Hareth was saying that uh, whenever there were Ducati and Casey were discussing the contract, he said Casey said somewhere in the region of one to one hundred and fifty times that he doesn't want to make a permanent race uh, comeback. So if he does make a comeback, it'll be for a, a wild card, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you. Uh, uh, but this I think is perfect for uh, for Stoner because you know he's done the racing, he's got a couple of championships. Um, uh, he loves going fast. He, he always seemed more like someone who loved, who enjoyed going fast on a motorcycle rather than uh, someone who likes racing. Again, he was the polar opposite to Rossi. Rossi is a Sunday rider. R uh, Rossi is um, uh, Rossi is always. You, I mean, you look at his times in qualifying, but then you always have to sort of 
yourself to subtract a couple of tenths because you know that he's going to be even faster uh, come uh, come race day. Whereas Stoner was fast from the moment the track opened until until the moment it, it closed. He just his his joy was in, in going really really fast on a motorcycle and scaring the living bejesus out of him. Yeah, and there were there were kind of parallels with uh, I thought with Danny Kent at the end of this season in Moto Three with uh, with Stoner when he was leaving one two fives. I remember Casey coming out and being quite brazen, you know, and just attacking the nature of uh, of you know one two five racing at the time. That was what two thousand and five. He made his, his, his step up to the two fifty class, and he was saying that you know oh, you never get a chance to run your own race or run your own line, and all these people are coming up the inside, and he kind of carried that through the rest of his career, I guess, uh, all the way through the Moto GP class. You know, just go out and do his own thing he doesn't like to be interrupted he, yeah. yes exactly <laughs> Where, hence hence the uh, uh slightly um, um how can we put this impish behavior when uh, when people were uh, would getting his way um the the, the punching and the and the gesticulating and uh, and all the rest of it but uh, which made made for a little bit of entertainment yeah. right sweet so that's everything uh we have to discuss for this episode of the paddock pass podcast um I am Neil Morrison. You can find me on Twitter at Neil Morrison eighty seven, and you have been. I have been, uh, and am currently, and will continue to be David Emmett at Motor Matters and Stephen English at Steve English GP. Okay, fantastic. Well, thank you for joining me, gentlemen, tonight, and thank you also for listening to this edition of the Paddock Pass Podcast. If you enjoy the show and listen to it through iTunes, please leave us a rating and a review. It really helps other MotoGP fans find the show. Also, be sure to follow us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash paddockpasspodcast and Twitter at paddockpasspod. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. And one last thing. Um, uh, make sure you buy your Moto Matters uh, uh, racing calendar because um, there's not, not that many of them being produced, and they are awesome, uh, featuring the awesome work of Scott Jones. Yes, absolutely. You showed me a PDF yesterday, and I was bowled over. My jaw hit the floor at some of those images. Beautiful. There's one thing that's far more important than that, David. What's that? Make sure you send your copies to your friends. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we can manage that. <laughs>